Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode 112. I'm Alex Hayes. With me is Will. Hello. Hey, Will. And with us is Matt Bartholomew. So Matt's been on the podcast, I think, twice before. Or was it three times, Matt? I think twice before. This will be my third, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, yeah. on the three, Pete. Welcome back on, Matt. It's good to have you. Thanks, boys. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Hello again. So we had Matt, the athlete, on the first episode. Well, the first time we had Matt on. I think it was episode four. Mm. And then we had him on again as sort of a hybrid coach athlete. And now it's just going to be Coach Matt. So welcome, Coach Matt. Hello. Um, we want to talk today about coaching systems the different yep. coaching systems that there are and sort of how you've gathered those and created your own coaching system and sort of how you would define that so I guess that's where we'll start is how would you define your coaching system where have you taken inspiration from has it been a, been a particular coach or system or is it sort of a mish, mishmash of different influences yeah good question I um, my coaching system has developed an awful lot over the years um, it's come from a place where, you know, I only knew a couple of things. I'd only got an inspiration from a couple of people. Um, and I more or less copy-pasted those systems and tried them out and, and, and you know, observed the results and then gone from there. Um, having my coaches as Andrew Tang, um, guys like Dean McKillop in the, in the bodybuilding world, and also having had a look at the Emerging Strategies framework, um, there's definitely been uh, an improvement and a progression to how I how I go about training people. Um, so I guess at the moment the best way to, to define my coaching system um, is as very flexible. It's it's one that is observant and reactive. Um, but in saying that, I'm a firm believer of uh, not sitting in any one camp and in having a, a you know a robust tool belt to be able to call on different tools and methods uh, depending on what I see in front of me. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a pretty vague um, way of looking at it. But if I look a little bit deeper into the, the bit more nitpicky stuff, um, I'm a big advocate of training for hypertrophy with powerlifters. Um, and that comes from uh, you know influences like the JPS crew as well as Dean uh, and as well as my own anecdotal experiences as a lifter. I'll carry that into my, my, um, my methodology as a coach. Um, my experience and what I've observed and what we do continue to see you know, in Australia and in the world is that a lot of the top-end powerlifters or those who do well long-term are those who are well-built and have a lot of muscle. So even when we're going through phases that are maybe more specific and more geared towards strength-specific adaptation for the big three lifts, there's still a front-of-mind um, hypertrophy focus uh, in my system. Uh, particularly for my beginners to intermediates, which, you know, that's a, the largest sort of um, proportion of my roster. I do have a few what I would call elite lifters who I don't need to really focus on that as much for. But really, it's like kind of glorified bodybuilding training where there's also like a dose of squat bench and deadlift, right? Um, and so on that note, you know, um, for, for lack of a better description, um, being hyper-accurate and hyper-specific in the way that I go about my SBD the majority of the year is is not necessarily as important as the bigger picture and the bigger direction, you know? Um, the way I kind of think about how my training approach has changed as a coach is I've gone from kind of having one, like, sort of tidal wave of just 
moving an athlete one way and hoping that they get the adaptations they want to being really specific and intentional from block or phase to phase with what specific physiological adaptations I'm after in the big picture. So that's, that's kind of a roundabout way of explaining the way I go about things. Um, but it's very much not a system as much as it is uh, being able to call on uh, a variety of aspects of systems I've come across uh, to try and help my lifters as best I can. Yes, something I've often thought about, and you kind of said this in the start of your answer when you see like you draw inspiration from lots of systems, is that there's something, and it's a bit like when we think about periodization as well, there's something very useful about having like a system or a framework or a label because it directs your thoughts and it gives you like a bunch of heuristics within which to work. So like if you're a coach who coaches like block periodization type of programming, that already gives you a meta structure and a way you're gonna think about writing programs. So that's helpful, but it's also very constraining. And particularly if you identify like extremely strongly with one system, it, it like sort of unnecessarily narrows the options with which you approach programming. Whereas when you do have that sort of broad philosophical base, like for you, it's, you know, develop muscle and general muscular qualities and then and then do whatever you need to within each phase to get the specific things you want right now. When you have that more sort of general idea and just some principles underpinning it, it gives you a lot of flexibility in how you actually go about the nuts and bolts of what you do. But with that also comes a little bit more responsibility to think for yourself because you don't have you don't have this sort of system or like framework to fall back on and say, well, if I just do this on average, I'll kind of just get some results. So what's I guess in your thinking well firstly do do you agree but secondly in your thinking what sort of led you away from from just being a coach who does one thing and more towards a coach who sort of pulls from bits and bobs here and there yeah that's a good question um yeah I definitely agree um I think the reason that um I've moved away from just doing one thing is um, I'm very I'm very um very interested you know to to kind of know if there's something that's going to be better um and something that I often say, um, you know, Hazy and I talk about this a lot, is we never actually know whether uh, a method was ideal for a certain outcome because we can't take that athlete, repeat a different process and see if the outcome was better. We can only know if it was good or if it was progress or if it was not progress. And so there's always that voice in the back of my head of, yeah, that was great. Um, you know, we got a 30 kilo total people from X lifter. But hey, like, could that have been done better? Was there something that I missed? Um, but at the same time, not getting a headache over that. Um, so I think there's that general kind of inquisitive nature um, to sort of trial things and see what the reaction is like. Um, but I guess as well, it's it's also it's also a, a, a remark of what makes sense to me. You know, like I have my own opinions, my own experiences. If I hear someone talk about a certain system, I either nod my head or I shake my head in regard to my own experiences. And that's kind of how we end up at all these different camps and all these different systems. Is it kind of, well, that makes sense to me, so I'm going to explore that a little bit more. Oh, that, that, that helps get results in this kind of population or this kind of athlete? Well, that's my system now. That's kind of how things like that occur, really, is through experience, through trial and error. Um, but I think that you know anyone who knows me well knows that I very rarely speak with absolutes. I very rarely say this is absolutely right or the only way, and this is absolutely wrong or, or never the way. Um, so I think that nature in me uh, means that I explore uh, and I'm very open to the possibilities of things being more ideal or less ideal. So yeah, my my mindset around coaching is just growth, and I think it's it's obvious in how different approaches can achieve similar results when you just look at the top lifters yeah like there are some really great lifters who 
train really low volume and really high intensities. There are other lifters who train at higher volumes and lower intensities and sort of everywhere on that spectrum. Yeah, what also which, add to that just quickly is you also see the same lifter get success out of low volumes and success out of high volumes, which also adds another question mark. Yeah, and that just shows you that you should never really tie yourself to one system because you don't know if you're missing something in another system or yeah. there are things you can change that can make things better like Absol- you said absolutely and, and and then you know there's I think there's a spectrum you know I, I love you know giving the analogy of a spectrum with a lot of things with that in mind also if you're getting results like don't don't change a good thing and don't don't fix it if it's not broken to a degree you know so if you take someone who's at world champion status and they can put you know 10 15 kilos on a total we know that's very impressive and so if you were going to do that and then go, oh, but what if, well, maybe not. Maybe there is some validity to observing and, you know, repeating a process to a degree or saying, generally speaking, this athlete tends to respond to X weeks of X sets at this volume. I'm going to repeat that. Let's see if I can get a good result again. Um, but in my experience, to kind of back up what you said, Alex, like I work with 50 lifters across complete beginners to some very, very, very strong individuals. And I have seen great results from a myriad of different styles and methods and amounts of things, you know. And so that continues to reinforce to me not to buy into being too closely tied to one system or one camp uh, because, you know, the way I see it is you're just closing one eye or blocking one ear. You're just not listening or looking. Mm. Uh, And that's where we stop growing as coaches is where we go, yep, well, this this is my system and that'll be it, you know. Mm. Um, I really don't like that approach at all. Another thing that, that occurs to me as well is like I also have this thing where I like to look across really diverse training systems and I try and pull out like the universal commonalities. Like what are people actually doing similarly in things that, that at face look really different? Yeah. And I think that's a helpful exercise. But another thing that goes back to what Alex said about how like people will get similar results from different systems is when you're, when you're really, really tied to a certain way of thinking or you always look at training through a certain prism, so say, again, it's block periodization or whatever, you're also inclined to make your attributions on the basis of the things that you think about. So if you're a, if you're a block periodization obsessed coach, you're going to think about things like phase potentiation and you know, accumulation, transmutation, and realization and stuff yep. in everything that you do. And it may be that those things actually do describe the training responses you're seeing in different programs or the differences between training responses but it might also be that it's just something that you don't think about at all. It might be that it's got to do with the individual in front of you, their social environment, their you know their paratraining environment. It could have to do with exercise selection in a way that doesn't sort of sit within your framework. Massively, all sorts of other things, and they're like, it's it's kind of frustrating because as somebody who's interested in sports science, I like to try and distill things down to concrete variables and make observations on that basis. But in reality, training exists in this like. Everyone hates the word holistic way. And it's so, fluid. It's fluid, right? Yeah. And so I think I think sort of like the more stuff that I learn and the more observations I make, the less certain I am about actually knowing necessarily what works. Or at least or at least knowing like um, before the fact what I expect to work, except for on the basis of that it just kind of did before. Absolutely. You know, just like what you said. Absolutely. And I think that um, my eyes were really opened to um, that when I when I learned a little bit more about emerging strategies, um, because the concept there, you know, that Mike speaks about is reducing the noise and being able to pinpoint certain variables that are actually causing the positive adaptation, <clears throat> and therefore being able to repeat X process to you know recreate that positive adaptation. 
But for me personally, all I have found through that process of, of trying to reduce the noise and observing that there is a lot of noise is finding more noise, you know? So you can have a program that is controlled and that reduces the amount of changing variables across a block, but the environment and the social settings and whatever's actually happening on the athlete's end has such uh, significant implications on performance that it's very, very hard for us to, with absolute certainty, say, well, that was the thing, let's repeat that, which really backs up what you just said. So we might have someone who's going to hit you know, a triple at RPE 8 on a squat four weeks, five weeks in a row to try and observe where that peak in performance is. And from one week to the next, they may add five, seven, 10 kilos to that squat and observe that as a peak in performance. But we may have seen significant environmental changes like um, you know, how well they were able to reach their peak optimal arousal, their environment and people around them, um, their, their actual technical execution of the lifts itself, how well they slept, how their body is feeling, you know, whether they get treatment, are they eating in a surplus or a deficit? And all of a sudden, the same phase recreated six months later or observed as ideal is completely different for that lifter because those significant environmental factors that do impact performance. And all of a sudden this data is not as reliable as it is in theory, as it is in a lab, you know, where we say, well, let's control everything and just change one thing. Well, you can't do that in the real world. And so looking into that, I really love the ideas, like something that I really love about the Emerging Strategies concept is stress index and being able to observe and review blocks and be able to see what general zone does this athlete thrive in. I really love that. But I, the more I looked at reducing the noise, the more I realized like, hey, for me, is that really realistic? And can I like put head on pillow going, yeah, I've controlled everything? Probably not. You know, that's kind of where I sit with that. Yeah, um, I don't think it... Um Sorry to interrupt you. I don't think it invalidates the like the principles of emerging strategy. I think it's a really good idea to say what's a training dose that works. Um, but I think, and this is something, again, I've thought more and more about since I started working with Bryce Lewis because I think it's a, a real strength of his, is that even just the ways in which we frame and express, express training goals and things to athletes can sort of change their approach in a really meaningful way. And so when you have somebody... And I don't really use a very emerging strategies-esque framework. I have, I have less variation week to week than I used to with my clients, but I wouldn't say I'm quite at that end of the spectrum. But you know, if I go to say to somebody, like you said, we're going to do triples at RPE 8 for, for the next however many weeks and observe your response, you might have one athlete for whom they have utter belief that they've got the right training dose and therefore week by week they will be better. And they go in and like, whether it's from the training being effective or just like the strength of belief or not, they're going to go in and like really go after it in training and probably see improvement. Whereas if you have another athlete who's like, oh, this is explorative. I wonder if the training's working for me. I better be hypervigilant and see like, am I a little bit tired today? You know, oh, I'm a bit tired. Maybe I'm not the, maybe I'm not the type of responder that does well on this program. Yep. You know, and suddenly they've almost noceboed themselves out of performance. And so your role as a coach in that kind of scenario is almost more like, less about the exact nuts and bolts of the training and more about trying to create that environment and belief in your athlete that like, hey, you're going to get better from training or at least you can expect that your efforts will be realized in outcomes over the long term. And it's less about what's on the page and more about getting in there and going after it, you know? Yeah, well, the crux of what I'm hearing there is understanding your athlete and understanding what makes them tick and where they sit from from a psychological standpoint and how you can optimize their, not only their approach to training, but therefore their performance in training by the implements you use and the tools you use, which is exactly what I'm getting at. You know, I think that um, 
like you said, it doesn't invalidate the ideas that surround emerging strategies at all. Um, and there's still definitely parts of that that I implement in my own programming, much like yourself, though I'm not down that end of the spectrum because I struggle to see it as a broad brush successful method for all of my lifters. Um, even within singular phases, I will phase in and out of more or less of that style and more or less of a more rigid style um, based on communication, based on outcomes, based on approach and having a really transparent relationship with athletes. Um, you know, I'll give an example. Uh, I coach, you guys know Matthew Hens over in America, um, very strong lifter, has had a lot of phases where he's had a lot of success and built confidence through an approach where he's following RPE. Uh, and then he's had, you know, the second week of a phase where we've tried to do that again, where he's literally said, hey, can you actually take the reins again? Because I'd rather you uh, estimate wh wh where you think I will be. Um, and whether or not I will do that better than him, I'll do it pretty well, just like he'll do it pretty well he's decided that he'd like his coach to take that role, which is straight away, like you've mentioned, gonna probably give him that extra bit of confidence and positive attitude to training going, ah, it's actually out of my hands, I trust my coach, and I'm just gonna go in and lift. Uh, and I experienced that on, on, a, on a lifter's level as well, is when Tang programs for me, we have some days that are, that are you know, ranges and RPE based, which it gives me that flexibility to push. Like we mostly use RPE to push rather than pull back because we have big contrast days that are more percentage based that are really pulled back. And we're pretty, we're pretty damn sure that's not gonna be tough work. And so the risk uh, isn't, in, isn't really there in that more rigid structure because we're not saying, oh, I'll go do a single at 97% good luck. You know, it's not really like that. And so the more I see coaches who gear a little bit more towards one end of the spectrum, say more auto-regulation or, or more emerging strategy style versus that other end of the spectrum of like, just follow a progressing percentage every week and no changes are allowed. I don't really ever see absolutely either of those. I think what we see is uh, more towards those ideas and then a very blended strategy. So, you know, I see a lot of individuals following RPE, who would like to think that they're, they're hitting an eight each week, as is the intention, but far more often we might see, um, you know, early phase undershoots and late phase overshoots, which looks more and more like a linear progression model. And so then we also see um, coaches who are designing phases which are maybe a little bit more rigid and a little bit more percentage-based that are then opening up the end of those phases for flexibility or are very open to communication from their lifters with flexibility. So like I say, you know, I don't really see the like far ends of those spectrum very often, actually ever. Um, it's more often that we see these supposed very different systems look rather similar, you know? So something, um, something I've observed as well is like a criticism of percentage-based or like or prescribed load programming is often that when you do it, and there's a degree to which I think this is true, is when you do it, you don't allow for the athlete to make adjustments so that the dose is what feels appropriate. And then what follows from that is people think, therefore, you won't develop good interoceptive awareness. You won't develop a sensation of, of your body sensations and an ability to integrate them and, them and say, this is what it means for my performance and how I'm going today. Because instead of having to think about what you should lift, you just lift what you're meant to lift. But I actually think in the context of a program a bit like yours, where you have days where it says you're open to push, you can select loads and things, and then you have a day that is a fixed load where, like you said, you're pretty confident that the weight's going to move well. You know roughly, like for you, you're doing doubles and triples at 215 or whatever on your squat. You know vaguely how that should move on a given day. Yeah. 
because you actually have that contrasted, if anything, gives you more of a chance to develop that interoceptive awareness because it's like, I know what it's like for me to squat 215 kilos. And so if I have to go squat 215 kilos, I can tell the difference between my good days and my bad days. And even that itself feeds into that skill set of being a self-managing athlete. You yeah, know? well, it actually gives you breathing room, you know, like, mm. like what you've just said. And I think it also gives you the opportunity to observe without pressure too, and also to observe without bias. Alex and I talk about this a lot. When you get given a, a program that says hit X at eight, uh, well, the bias is that when we go and hit something that's actually a seven and a half or a seven or an eight and a half or whatever, we want to be able to say that it's an eight because we've been told to do that. We believe that we've hit that and that's what we're surrounded by. Um, but I also find that, you know, for, for me personally, like obviously this is very much a coaching chat, but the things that I experience as an athlete do, do tie in. Um, on those sort of secondary squat days for me, which are, which are a big contrast in terms of absolute load, what I observe as the athlete is my perception of my proximity to failure is often pretty off um, for whatever reason. Uh, it's something that's consistent weekly, so perhaps it's to do with that sort of like acute fatigue model that's happening. I'm working really hard end of week, start of week. I, um, I feel tired, I feel sore. I generally just don't feel good under the bar despite weight moving well. And so I actually find it really useful to be able to disconnect from really closely observing that feeling and just get under the bar and lift and to be able to then look at a video and, and look more objectively and say, yeah, actually, that's a, if I had to rate that organically in the moment, it would be very, very different to the reality. And that's where I think we come, come, come to issues as well is... This is another bit of noise that occurs when we when we look at uh, athletes observing their performance and how they feel. Is from one block to the next, I've experienced this. I'm sure you guys have experienced it, and I'm sure you've seen it in a lot of your clients. Is athletes get better or, or worse across blocks at having a really good idea of their of of how close they are to actual mechanical failure. Because of course, perceived exertion is, is the goal, but we want that perceived exertion to be as close to real as possible for the data to be real. So from one block to the next, if we're replicating blocks that were successful and that changes very much, that can alter our average stress index an awful lot, which again, all of a sudden just makes it a blur of what was really the thing that helped the athlete. So yeah, I, I really back having having days where we're able to be malleable and push and, and I feel good, let's go. Um, in the same breath, it's, I'm sure it's nice to have that opportunity to pull back when, when days don't allow for it. But I think you can strike that nice balance of integrating, you know, like I've said, those secondary days where you're able to actually tone back a bit mentally, uh, come in and still observe and still practice those soft skills, but get under the bar and lift and, and do what you know you can do. Yeah, I've actually used... I've used almost the opposite system with a number of my athletes where I prescribe their heavy day cool. so that they can switch off and just go lift. And these are these are typically the athletes who might be overthinkers, you know, who when they're given choice, they panic because choice gives them responsibility they don't want. Yeah. So often I'll prescribe the heavy day and then on their light day, I'll give them RPE ranges and occasionally even set and rep ranges. Yeah. And I say, like, embrace the subjectivity in your RPE on that day. Like, I want you to anchor it to reps and reserve a bit, but just tone it back for how tired you feel if it's if it's meant to be your easy day. Like, understand your place in the program. These are the days Fantastic. I want to move, yeah. move well. And I think, like, 
that might not be the purest use of RPE in the sense that other people think of it, which is the reps and reserve model. But it is basically, it's exactly what you were describing is like, what's the mindset and approach to, to training that I want to engineer? Yeah. For some people it works, for some it doesn't. For some people it's still easy to do exactly what you said, which is just have a fixed day that, that is just easy. Yeah. But either way, the decision about how I prescribe that day and the language I use is more on the basis of how's the athlete going to interpret this and then go execute than it is about actually getting a concrete training prescription. Absolutely, because I mean, we we sort of move the up, we sort of move rate of perceived exertion across the powerlifting as RAR. Um, but in reality, it's 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 a vague score of difficulty that we can use in many more ways than just well, well an eight, so two, you know. Um, and and that's kind of the way I like to use RPE across most of my accessories with with my athletes. It's far less about RAR. It's more a general direction that I want it to feel this way. And so I really, I really back that, doing that on a, on a secondary day. Um, funnily enough, you know, you speak about um, the implications mentally or psychologically for an athlete in having the responsibility of finding their own load on a big day and how some athletes may really dislike that. Whereas I know for myself, I'm almost the complete opposite where I don't really like to know the number that's going to be on the bar until the day. And I love... It's actually a relaxing uh, or de-stress kind of feeling that comes from knowing that I'm a little bit more in control mm-hmm. and that I'm not going to be forced to squat something that maybe I'm not ready for on the day. So it's and and that that's just two examples of two different people who who need a, a, an opposite approach in their heavier and lighter days. Straight away, that speaks to the fact that we we can't sit in a camp on any one thing and go, well, this is the only way, and and well, if it doesn't work for you, and so yeah. Well, I mean, there's you and, you know, Chrissy, my client, you know, Alex's fiance is, I think, very similar. She likes having RPEs on her heavy days because it gives her that freedom to say, I'm going to lift the right amount. And she's actually pretty good at picking her RPEs. I'm like, if she undershoots, she undershoots and knows. And if she overshoots, she corrects. And there's never like stigma around her failure to adhere to training when she does that. Um, Whereas Beck, who trains at Paragon, is much more of the type of person where if I say, go pick a weight for your top set, Particularly for squat and deadlift, that's stressful for her. For bench, she's really, really good at it, actually, or she's or she's pretty good at it anyway. And so for her, I've been using a flexible progression model. And the reason I've been doing that is because I say to her, you know, you have a top set here. If you can't hit the top of that rep range on your top set, then your training is heavy enough. We don't have to progress. You're doing well. And if you do hit it, there's a sense of micro-achievement. We can progress. But either way, your progression is contingent upon your readiness to do it, and you're going to just lift the way that you're meant to lift. And again, it might not perfectly capture her fluctuations in performance and readiness. Like, I don't think any system truly, truly can. I think RPE might do it best. But it's the one that I think is equipping her well to go in and feel like she can try hard and see the progress that she's earning week by week and know that she doesn't doesn't have to push for something she doesn't think is there because the system allows her to do that. You know? That's a really good case study to just show that like you don't have to fit a system to an individual you create a system for an individual and I think that's a really diff- that's a really important distinction to make is you don't just throw blanket things at someone and see what sticks you kind of try and learn about the individual and then fit the needs of the individual to the system versus yeah. just oh, absolutely yeah and I, and I think that's that's hitting the nail on the head is that I'm sure for all of us if you looked at 
all of our clients' programs, you'd be like, wow, this is 10 different coaches. Nah, wrong. You know? They're all the same. It's copy-paste for me. If you I have always, five days, I just copy I always, day one. I, always, I do always joke about that with my lifters. I always go, oh yeah, your, your template was two bucks off, off Google or something, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I used to tell um, Nick Cheadle that there was a monkey that I paid to write my programs for ages. And whenever he sent me like something that was wrong in his program, I was like, that fucking monkey. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but like, I, I mean, I know uh, for myself, there's definitely a, a wide variety of how a program looks and I would say the biggest uh, the best description of that would be what Alex just said is creating a system for the individual and being having the intuition and experience as a coach to do that is actually a skill that does not come quickly um, and actually what I would say is early early stage coaches kind of need a system because you don't have that intuition yet and you haven't had the practice of 50 lifters plus minus 50 across five, six, seven years to have built up an understanding of, you know, sometimes I think Bryce actually might have posted about this the other day. It's like you might have that intuition to change sets or include a top set or include, you know, eccentric or isometric work for, for tendon health. There's this intuition of inclusion of things in programs and, 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 and changing from phases or intentions that is not a system. It, it's from observation and knowing an athlete and going, aha, I recognize this trend. Generally, this worked well. There's also this option too, and we can choose them and be happy with either. Um, because, you know, like, like we've been saying the whole time, we see results from so many different things. And so it's like, actually being slightly less picky but still having rationale you know like I think that's kind of a really good approach I think this is to sum that out like um, creating a system for the individual I love that yeah, I think having enough that. having enough tools in your toolbox which comes with like you said years of experience observing and learning and seeing what different responses can have on different populations is how you get that yep. you don't just learn a bunch of rules and then apply those rules to anyone because you're just not going to get the same Effects Totally. And I think this is something we've covered when we talked more as athlete, Matt, is that a lot of, a lot of these things, uh, the reason so many different things work is um, human beings are incredibly resilient uh, and adapt to, to intentional stimulus. Uh, but the overwhelming um, sort of push or the overwhelming fuel for that is the, is the inputs of the athlete, is the sleep, is the nutrition, is the mindset is the attention to technique uh, undoubtedly. And it's like you can you can have a phase or a structure or a style or, or whatever that is incredibly successful uh, for, for one person and then the very next moment it's not. And, and that can be just straight up from the inputs of the athlete. So you know, there's so much that goes into it. Uh, for, for me, the most important thing, and I'd say the development for me as a coach is um, my, my lens has become bigger and wider. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say... I mean, I'd be curious if you two agree, but this certainly how I work is I have, I, ha I actually do have templates that I begin with. And I don't mean a template where it's like this is an exact training program and I just put someone's name on it. Like I know that for my people who train four days a week, my starting point that tends to work well for most people is like heavier squat and moderate bench on day one, light bench and light deadlift on day two, lighter squat, heavy bench on day three, etc. Um, and you know, a certain distribution of accessory work and just some slots. But then once I get that, I go, well, you know, now that I know that I probably want my hard squats on day one, unless I've got a reason to change that, like, how am I going to program those squats for this person, yeah. et cetera? And then if I start going, well, 
you know, this person's still going to train four days a week, but I want to give them a third squat exposure. Where's the logical place to put that? And yeah. I can make those decisions from there. But that, that initial template is still one where I go, this, this arrangement tends to work for most people. I don't think it's, I think you run the risk if you sort of think too hyper individualized of like doing everything from scratch in a way that's inefficient and might lead you to make more bad decisions just because you have to make more decisions. Absolutely. Whereas if you start from like a point where you go, this is usually pretty good, yep. then you can make reasoned changes from there and you don't make as many decisions and less decisions might actually mean fewer mistakes. Yeah, and that's the yeah. same it's the same idea of like as you start with a new person, you start with general recommendations and then you individualize in either direction. Yeah. It's really important to have those default systems or default sort of standards skeleton, in a program a skeleton, skeleton in a program yeah. that's a good way of putting it yeah, yeah. It's a, just a good starting point yeah absolutely and I think I think again even for those who don't necessarily have a template they do in their brain uh, and that's that's bias and that's just experience based where you'll sit down and you'll go yeah I tend to do XYZ uh, I'm starting with a new client who I know this much about I know that they're a lightweight female I know that they're relatively experienced so I would tend to like seeing this in a program Let's see how that goes. Does it suit their preferences? Do they seem to be making progress? What else can I observe? And then we go from there. So yeah, I definitely agree that it's not ever going to be a process of like, all right, so we're going to squat on day one, but let's just do like a BOSU squat this time. You know, like it's not going to be this huge array of individualization. We're still doing a lot of things the same. It's the tweaks and it's the slight alterations and it's how those can be deeply effective for a different person. You're saying I should later. take all the BOSU squats out of my client's program? Look, man, like you don't have to do that, but it was just an example. <laughs> <laughs> if you're hip shifting and you're not squatting on a BOSU ball, then something's like, wrong. <laughs> yeah, something's definitely wrong. So uh, I want to sort of not like wrap this up, but kind of bring a full circle and, and put this to you, Matt. Like how different really... Uh, are all these different training systems that we hear in your mind and what's it what's it mean to you when people start saying like if you're not doing X a certain way you're missing out oh yeah I, look I, I have a really strong opinion on this um, I really dislike the kind of dogmatic approach to training systems and um, you know the the opinion or the view that if you're not doing certain training style, you know you're losing out or you're missing out on potential. Um, and the reason is is kind of because of the start of that question. There is often in in theory these systems look really really different on paper, but in practice uh, they end up being awfully similar. Um, so you know if I use an example, um, I forget his last name, Bryce, Canadian Bryce, Corchek. Yep. Um, he made a post not too long ago, which I loved because it was such a great example of someone who, you know, gets coached by Mike, uh, follows emerging strategies, um, or gets programmed in that way, but made the conscious decision as the athlete to gain momentum throughout a block, uh, undershoot early, and then progress throughout that block um, in, in, in a way that on paper would end up looking like a completely different system. And, you know, it was at first a kind of head-scratch moment for me, and then it was a bit of an aha moment for me because it made me realize that the best athletes and the best coaches are seeing through the rigid structures of these individual systems and they're bringing them closer and closer to being really similar to something else um so yeah look i think that um to kind of answer the second part of your question it it, it does bother me to see that kind of thing uh out there that really dogmatic approach to well this is what i'm doing it worked for x and therefore it's the only way i think it's just really a really blind and and sort of 
you know, like like I sort of said before, it's kind of keeping one eye closed and one ear closed. Um, yeah, sure, what you're doing is working well, fantastic. Uh, keep that in mind. Um, but like I said at the start of the pod, it's like my my approach has become one of being inquisitive, uh, observing, and being interested in if there's perhaps a better way I can do things without being silly about it. So, yeah, I guess that's where I sit on that. Um, it's 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 also like I also have like some understanding though, like some some empathy that we like to feel at home or we like to feel like we belong to something. Um, so, you know, if you go and do a study, a certain style, um, of course you're going to buy into it and maybe it makes sense. Maybe it does produce results. And so naturally we go, well, okay, well, where all the, you know, like periodization, block periodization crew, let's all claim together and talk about how great it is and, and whatever, you know? Sorry, go on. Get some made. And, and you know like to a degree I think that's really natural human behavior so I understand it um, but it's definitely something that I try to remain conscious of in myself and try not to get there because I know I, I know through my experiences that going into one camp or the other um, is missing is missing the potential um, fixes or the whole patching that can happen from using parts of the other and that's something that I talk about a lot is both systems have their clear holes and clear things that aren't ideal about them, but we just look over the fence and often other systems have the answer, the answers or part of the answers. So yeah, to kind of round that out, I, I think that it's a really short-sighted way of approaching programming and coaching if we can't look beyond an individual system. And it does, it does speak for experience. Yeah, and I think you, you, you alluded to this um, just then is people look across the fence and they're looking at holes in other systems and ignoring the holes in their own systems and I think it's important to recognize positives and negatives in either direction and on every single point of the spectrum to then fully understand you know when to use certain things and when not to yeah and really accepting that um, it's rare or impossible to have a completely patched system and be fine with that because if the overwhelming direction is positive then we can we can be happy with that mm. you know um, without resting on our laurels and going well the minimum <laughs> like progress we're happy with it we always you know want to search and find better things but I definitely think that um, accepting that we're not going to get that perfect system or, or program or whatever, whatever is, is a good way to approach it. So here's a thought bubble, um, but it's one that I actually believe <coughs> is that your ability to sort of modulate between. Um, As he's drawing a thought bubble. Right oh, right. Yeah. Sick, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, your ability to sort of modulate between different systems and give your athletes a slightly different experience. So doing kind of what you mentioned with your American lifter, where sometimes he does like he does RPE training sometimes you take the reins it could be that it could be changes to your meta structure it could be using you know a very emerging strategies-esque training for one thing and then a very like power building-esque you know imposed progression one and another one your ability to do that as a coach actually also gives your clients lots of different experiences and those experiences are useful both from a learning perspective for them to be able to you know draw lessons out about their own training responses and how they can be effective in the gym but it's also just good from like a mental refreshment standpoint and I think if you're a coach who's like, I'm only going to be this guy, when your trainees eventually do get a little bit exhausted of being run through the middle of the same sort of training system, even if you're making changes to your training program, like eventually people just sort of hanker for something different. And a lot of people would probably like to maintain their relationship with you, the coach, but have some slightly different experiences in yep. training. And so your ability to service them and still have an eye in your mind of like, what am I trying to achieve? And how can I just sort of 
like dish this up a bit differently and give the athlete the change they need, it's going to be really helpful for the longevity and retention perspective. Absolutely. Quick anecdote on that. You know, I have been coached by Tang for four years, thereabouts. Um, you know, the first couple of years there, he definitely geared more towards a, a rigid structure where he'd be prescribing the vast majority of my work, even accessories. Uh, and that was his style. And hey, I got stronger and it was very successful. I got to a point where I started seeing and learning about, you know, different styles. And, you know, we, we, we did a bunch of RPE training a couple of years back. Um, but the opportunity to have that chat with him and, and he, he's a model coach in reflection of what you just spoke about in that he was able to adapt and integrate things that may or may not have physically been better or worse for me, but were would appeal to my interests and keep me you know, working with him and in the sport for a longer time. And so all of a sudden, the, the multifaceted approach has got more levels to it, you know? Um, so yeah, on, on, on a personal level, I was able to dip my toes in, in the water of, of some RPE and then be able to say, yeah, cool, all, all good, all good, but oh, I didn't realize that there were those negatives or those negatives that I don't particularly like. So, hey, can we, can we actually scale that back now? And then there'll be phases where I'll go, hey, I think I'm ready to do X. You know, I've had a phase where I was given the reins uh, to control my own loadings with RPE for a big high bar phase. I gave myself like a tendinopathy in the left knee because I just was in the mindset to overshoot everything because I was really hungry. And um, that was no fault of the system. That was uh, um, the wrong system at the time for me. Uh, whereas now I'm a much more level-headed and mature lifter. I'm sure I've got a way to go, but I wouldn't do that to myself. But hey, actually because I experienced that. So it was a really valuable experience despite it being painful. Um, so... Yeah, like being able to uh, move in and out and and remain fluid in your approach, um, I definitely back that it helps engaging your lifters and and for longevity and interest in the sport and also in the relationship, you know? I think at the risk of putting words in your mouth because they basically came out of mind already, it sounds like there's a lot more to actually being an effective coach for your athletes than just being the dude who programs in a certain way. Oh, it would have to be the the huge minority of that process is the program, you know? Um, it's like the little cherry on top of like, well, by the way, there's your program, you know? Um, you know, the, the, the relationship you're building, uh, how considerate you are of the, you know, we talk about biopsychosocial model when we talk about pain, but hey, how about when we talk about performance, you know? BPSM. <laughs> my favorite love that yeah, yeah. <laughs> put on a shirt yeah, that's why I program so many chains <laughs> <laughs> but you know like yeah. being considerate of um, the social implications of a lifter's performance like we just said about arousal and who's around you and how you're performing on a week to week basis psychological is huge huge like unbelievably huge huge and if you're not thinking about that and you, you touched on Bryce and I know from some interviews I've done with Bryce how considerate he is of athlete psychology. If that is not coming before, well, this is the this is the program, boss. It's it's really you're really um, stepping on your own on your own foot or shooting yourself in your in your, in your own foot. You know, um, those would by far be the bigger picture versus program, by far. Yeah, and I think like Bryce in his updates with me, he always touches on training, and obviously. There's kind of a point at which because I am a coach and I'm thinking about how I talk to my own clients when he talks to me, it becomes a bit weird and meta. But like, I can tell that he's quite deliberate in his emotional response to my training because it's going to gear things a certain way. But a very large part of his coaching is actually about, you know, that engineering of engineering of like a sense of social support for me. You know, we talk about things 
that don't have much to do with training. He talks about, you know, how I can better like structure my, my time and my emotions and things to approach yeah. training in the way I want. And I talk to him about like the likelihood of me adhering to or enjoying changes that he makes in my training program. And that will that will inform the way in which he actually goes about doing it so that I'll so that I'll believe in it and do it. Like all those things come far, far, far before he actually makes training programming changes for me. Yeah. And obviously like I'm well equipped enough to make decisions about my training if I have to. Um, and for people who maybe have like have less perspective, he might need to impose a bit more. But it's still that stuff that gives you the sensation of having a coach much more than just having a program. Absolutely. And that's something that Bryce said on the podcast with us is like the longer you work with someone, the you know, your how often you're gonna talk about their squat technique can go from a hundred out of a hundred to zero. Yep. And you learning about their life and like just the other day JP was asking me like if I was enjoying basketball being back and like stuff like that and like that kind of stuff helps you build a rapport with your coach to keep you like on track and keep you engaged in the system absolutely and you know and then just just you know we're not going on this topic for too long but to kind of you know pin that off that that's also very dependent on what kind of lift you have from an emotional standpoint so I know that a a strong connection with my coach and one that feels like he's rooting for me and he's backing me is a huge part of my drive when I get into the gym and train um and you know that's also combined with you know my own my own intrinsic drive as well as other people in my life um but that relationship that we've built um may well like hard to say but may well be as important or more important than the the, the training structures we've used me having a strong relationship with coach feeling like he trusts me I trust him he backs me I back him and off we go and we're going to go and make progress like that's a great place to be mentally some lifters actually don't really care quite that much you know and so again it's about developing understanding of your lifter creating a structure for them knowing them well Mm. yeah alright why don't we wrap it up there quickly and we'll come back and hit you with an underrated overrated probably rated I Right, welcome back. It's Weekly Weights. We've got Matt on, and we're going to do overrated, underrated, properly rated. I'm going to put it straight to Matt, because this is one that I've been experimenting with myself. Tights with no shorts in the gym. Oh, it's a great one for me. (laughs) (laughs) Tights with no shorts. Are they overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Man, they are underrated. Okay. Yeah, underrated. Justify. Justify. um, Comfort, breathability mobility ticks boxes man and I don't think enough people realise that can you go to the gym like can you leave home with no pants on ooh that's nah nah see I'll I'll rock up to the gym with my trackies on and then I'll, I'll... My magic mic strip your tracky yeah. pants off and yeah just... like your video with your deadlift that's what I'll do yeah yeah Alex what do you see like? like I like them and I also think they're underrated mm-hmm <laughs> Because I hate wearing my comp singlet in training unless I've actually got it up over my shoulders. And if you don't have it up over your shoulders, it just bunches around your stomach and it feels silly mm-hmm. and looks silly. Mm-hmm. So I think like tight shorts are a great alternative for that. Totally. Yeah. But the only issue that I run into is no short, no pockets. Okay, yeah, I'm not trying to carry anything in my pockets when I'm lifting, so I'm cool. Yeah, um, for me... I used to be really anti it because, like, politely, I think you look a bit lame when you do it. However, during lockdown, I started training in tights, no pants, a lot, mm-hmm. and it feels great. It's nice. To the point that I've just decided to embrace it, and now I'm doing a lot of my sessions tights, no pants. Yeah. Um, but I only wear long tights, so I'll, I'll do deadlift sessions tights, no pants. Yep. 
great stuff and it also means you don't have to wear deadlift socks which means less outfit changing during the session yep. which is good cool. but so for my squat sessions I'm just less shorts. washing for mum to do oh no so you live no, on your I own, own, own washing <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard so, <laughs> so overwhelmingly underrated yeah I'll call it underrated nice alright Matt your last job is tell everybody where we, where we can get in touch with you for coaching and anything else you want to let them know yeah, cool. I've got I've got one if you guys want me to do it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm I'm talking about the um, this is an American trend, the crop tops, powerlifting crop tops. What do you mean? Like, as in a for men, an actual T-shirt that cuts above your belly button. Have you seen Russ or he wears like crop tops? Russ or he can wear whatever he wants, and it's still going to be fine. Look, yeah. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say overrated. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah I'm sure I'm framing right now. I'm yeah. gonna say overrated. But like if people, I'll give everyone the context of why he does that. So, I mean, American football, they actually wear crops in training, yeah. and they actually wear crops. Like some of them even wear them in games where they have their like abs showing. Yeah. So like for for someone like him who has a football background, like it, that's really normal. Absolutely. But people who are then doing that and using that like fashion, just kind of copying him. Yeah. Lame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Underrated. Overrated. Probably rated or lame. Just lame. I've rated because lame. My immediate impression is probably overrated because yeah. I also think that like the discomfort of wearing your belt when you have a crop would be greater. Yeah. And so it's a bit... And like if I did it, I would look like like Please late 90s Britney Spears. Please do it. <laughs> but also with belt bruising. So I'm going to say overrated as well. Incredible. Matt? Yeah, yeah overrated is definitely my vibe on that. Okay, got if, that right. For talking about like actual functionality... Like, who wants to wear their belt just on bare skin? That's what I'm just like, saying. Like, that sucks. Yeah, it's not yeah. good. All right. Now it's your turn, Matt. Tell <laughs> everybody where they can find you for coaching. Yeah, cool. Um, look, Instagram underscore Matt Buffalm, you is the is the at. And then um, my email's in there. So that's, that's about it. Yeah, easy. So even if it's not for coaching, even just, you know, general questions and chats, I'm more than happy. Sweet. All right. Well, I'm Will at WWPT. Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you all next week.